Welcome to Central Alabama Crime Stoppers Podcast. Crime Stoppers is a nonprofit organization serving the state of Alabama to bring together law enforcement, media, and the community in the fight to stop, solve, and prevent crime. Now, let's start the show. Hello, everyone. This is Tony Garrett. I'm the executive director of Central Alabama Crime Stoppers, and I'm joined today with Sarah Stevens. And she is the editor and boss of Elmore Target News. Yes, sir. Today, Sarah, I wanted to bring in district attorney today. We have a lot of questions. I just want to get a sort of insight from a district attorney. We've had Daryl Bailey in, and I think you weigh in on that interview with Daryl Bailey, if I'm not mistaken. We had law enforcement officers in, but I think we need to go full circle to find out what a district attorney does. How does he fit in in this landscape of today's news and ongoings that everyone has an opinion? We have today joining us is C.J. Robertson. He's the chief assistant district attorney for the 19th Judicial Circuit. Uh, good morning, sir. Good morning. Tell us a little bit about yourself first, C.J. I know you, but the public, they don't know you. Tell us about being a district attorney, what made you want to be a district attorney, or how did you become a district attorney? Was it an accident, or did you actually want to be a district attorney? Well, I'm actually a Chilton County boy. That's where I was grew up, you know, with all the peach fields and that kind of stuff. I was a, a four-sport athlete, and I had some opportunities to play college athletics. Unfortunately, I had a partially torn ACL in one knee and a shoulder that was all jacked up from, from everything else, and I had the opportunity to go play some football in the Ivy League. Uh, was probably my best spot there. It really enjoyed some recruiting trips. Went to Alabama, went to Mississippi State on some recruiting trips, had some some great times there. But I, I took an academic scholarship to Montevallo, graduated from there in two years, and then went to law school. I went over to Jackson, Mississippi, Mississippi College School of Law. And man, let me tell you, I went over there on a visit and I fell in love. It's the yeah. second oldest Baptist college in the nation. And the people, I mean, they rolled out the red carpet and I knew I had found home. Basically, if you pick up Montgomery and you moved it a couple hours west, that's Jackson. And I loved it. It was the closest to home of any of the places that I had visited. And that's new where I wanted to be. While I was at MC... I did a lot of things. I was involved in the Christian Legal Society there. I was a columnist, a religion columnist for the newspaper, and helped found a lot of sports and entertainment law societies and just really enjoyed my time. But while I was there, something significant happened. And my third year of law school, your third year, you go work somewhere for free. And law firms and people love it because they get a lot of work for free. And I was one of those workers. And so I go to my placement supervisor. Her name was Carol West, and she was actually from Rockford, Alabama. Small world sometimes, right? So I go in, and I tell her, I said, I think I want to be a prosecutor. And she laughed, and she said, I've got the perfect spot for you. And I'm thinking, I'm going to be at the DA's office, Hines County Municipal Prosecutor, something. You know, I'm going to be, you know, get after it. Well, she assigns me to the Office of Capital Defense. And I said, no, 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 Professor West. No, 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 no. I don't want to be a defense attorney. I don't want to work on capital murder defense cases. I want to be a prosecutor. And she said, this is not a democracy, Mr. Robinson. You have your assignment. Good day. And I'm thinking, man, this lady, she's just busting me. I go and I I start learning. And Tony, the experience changed my life. And the reason it changed my life was I had an opportunity to work on cases from the ground up. My third year of law school, I drove all over the state of Mississippi with my 3L practice card. And I would go in these jails. I'd meet with people who were charged with capital murder. And my job was to help build the defense from the ground up. 
So I walked through neighborhoods to where I look, people look very different from me, and I learned how to talk to people. I learned how to listen to people. It's just skills that I think are really getting lost in today's time, especially with social media and phones. We all want to text each other, but can you and I have a conversation when we fundamentally disagree about a topic? So I learned how to do that. And at the end of my third year, I still wanted to be a prosecutor, but I felt like I had learned a tremendous amount of skills throughout that year. And came back to Central Alabama and did a little bit of everything, wills, uncontested divorces, some criminal defense. You know, Sally May, she wants her loan payment. She don't re- didn't really care if you were happy with what you were doing. And uh, so as we went through that process, uh, I took a job at a, a law firm in Birmingham, corporate law, did that for about a year. But man, my heart was just pulling. I didn't feel like I was doing what I was put here to do. And I wanted to be a prosecutor. I wised up, started calling the DA's office every Monday morning. And I rang that phone off the hook, baby. I rang that thing until they answered it. It wouldn't matter how much they had going on. I just kept calling, kept calling. And I finally just, I, they, they probably gave me an interview just to shut me up, just to get me to quit calling the office. And I had an interview and it went well. And 15 years later, I'm still there. It's just, it's a blessing because I honestly prayed for that job. I drove downtown to Birmingham every day and the paycheck was great. I didn't enjoy what I was doing though. And I remember one day I went up to the the top floor that was under construction and I stood there and I looked out the window and I'm watching the traffic going and I'm just thinking, I said, you know, I can sit here and I could just pray to be happy doing well. I'm advancing through this law firm, you know, this kind of deal. I don't feel like I'm fulfilling my purpose. And that's how I ended up at the DA's office. And man, for 15 years, I haven't felt like I went to work a single day. A lot of people don't understand that district attorneys about like police officers. We don't do it for the money. No, 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 no. I tell you this, I took about a $50,000 pay cut to go from a corporate firm to the DA's office and don't regret it one bit. With the DA right now, it's a job I don't think a lot of people really understand, you know, what goes into it. I think a lot of people like know the title, but they don't really understand because we have a really unique role. So our role in the system is, I mean, the way I classify it is, our role is to seek the truth and to pursue justice. Now, that may sound like a tagline. That may sound like something you put on a billboard. It's actually something that I've been saying for years because the reason that's so important for us is at the end of the day, if a case is brought to us and I find out that the defendant was incarcerated in Indiana, so he could not have committed the crime on this day, I have a 100% ethical obligation to dismiss that case and not go forward with it. I am bound by the truth. I, I don't get to stand up in court for a witness, and this witness is harmful to our case. So you know what? I'm going to stand up and accuse them of having an affair. I'm going to accuse them of committing a crime somewhere else. If I don't have a good faith belief in that, I can't do it. I don't get to make things up and create a false narrative convenient for my case. I'm bound by the truth. And there's a higher standard there. I welcome that standard. I appreciate that standard. Our standard is not just like the scales of justice, which side tips. We have to prove our case beyond a reasonable doubt. So almost 100%. Faith is very important to me. I'm a Christian man. I'm a deacon in my church. And the fact that you know, you hold yourself to a higher standard that you don't do something just because you can. You need to do it because it's right. I think that embodies what we do as DAs because, yes, we are there for if law enforcement brings us a case, we work alongside them to help make good cases and to try to hold people accountable. But at the same time, if there's a case to where law enforcement missteps or if they overstep or if there's some new law that they have been trained on, then we need to train them. Then we need to work with them. We need to communicate with them. And I take it personal. If we do make a bad case, 
then we need to work to make that better. We need to work for that not to happen again. And in 2016, actually, I became the first prosecutor to ever go through the full-time police academy. Man, let me just tell you, that was an awesome experience. And if anybody out there is considering doing that, I will tell you, when the SWAT team sends you a care package on the first day, that it includes a pink tiara and a tutu and polka-dotted socks and all coloring books and all these wonderful things that the uh, academy staff made it very known that they were not a post office box and that's not how things were supposed to work. So while I'm doing five and seven mile runs, I'm having to carry a four foot teddy bear and all this kind of stuff. And yes, all the hazing that went along with that. But it was an interesting time. It was great because it is open doors for me to communicate with law enforcement. What made you want to go to the academy as a district attorney? You didn't have to. What made you want to? I'd actually been a prosecutor for 10 years before I did that. And it's amazing looking back in 2016, I thought we had reached a time to where there was a bridge between prosecution and law enforcement. And there was a gap there to where communication was eroding and working together to get to the same goal was eroding. Little did I know where we were headed. Who would have thought, you know, fast forward four or five years, we'd be where we kind of are today. But at that time, I thought we needed to refocus on what was happening. How could we make better cases? That in light of the Prison Reform Act that had passed, when I started riding with officers, when I started going with them on patrol, going to scenes with them, it's an interesting feeling when you go out on a call and you're the red light on your radio comes on and the only thing your radio would be good for on that call is to throw at someone if you get in a fight. It's a it's a feeling that if you haven't been there, it's hard to recognize. And I've tried to take what some of these officers go through and relay that to our prosecutors and try to explain to them, yeah, guys, I mean, I know that report might not be great, but let's put it in context of what that officer was experiencing at the time. On the flip side, I've taught classes at these different agencies to say, okay, guys, I know this was something that you kind of assumed at the time, but we need that extra paragraph in your report to make better cases. Nonetheless, riding with these officers, I learned this major gap that I knew was there, but I didn't realize how big it was. What happens to the cases once they turn them in? How does the court go about sentencing them? Why does the DA's office do this? And man, those things has given me a platform for years now. I've went to different agencies and I've tried to establish a way to get across that gap, to bridge that. And it's expanded beyond our circuit. I mean, I've had the opportunity to teach at the academy and I've been teaching 30, 40 officers three times a year for five, six years now. So I've really tried to focus on making people understand there is a line and if you cross it, it is our job to enforce that line. But at the same time, in order to do justice to that victim, we got to be on the same team as much as possible. Sarah, what are your opinions well, for us? I know you got some questions oh, I have laying out. And CJ so is an easy interview. I, I always have so many questions, and, and I thank you for being here today. You know, as a newspaper owner, we get the craziest comments anytime that we run a story about any particular crime. And the one that is probably asked the most often, or a statement that is made whenever we have the bond amount in the article. Oh, Lord. Well, they shouldn't have a bond. Mm -hmm. Will you please explain why you can't just say that? Sure, I'll be happy to. The bonding process is, is one of the most misunderstood things out there. And it's misunderstood because there's elements to it. And I'm going to try to break that down. First off, when you start talking about 
constitutional rights and things like that. There are constitutional rights that you have to take into consideration. The goal of bond or the aim of bond is to have an amount set that ensures the defendant will show up for trial later. Now, there are other factors that come into play, and I think this is where a lot of misunderstanding comes in. So there are state statutes set by the legislature that set out a bond schedule. Kind of the default position is it's got to be within this range of of dollar amounts. Beyond that range of dollar amounts, there are some things in the Alabama Rules of Criminal Procedures, Rule 7.2, to where when I go to court, you could go to my bag right now, and I have a clipboard. And in that clipboard, I have Rule 7.2 printed out so that I am ready at any moment in time to walk in any courtroom and argue about bonds. I'm ready for it. Under 7.2, there's factors, and it could be the defendant's work history, his ties to the community. This one's big to me, the nature of the crime, the violence used in that crime, and the likelihood of a conviction. So I know that sounds strange to consider that on the front end, but, you know, if you have a case to where somebody shot and killed their wife and we didn't do a manhunt for 10 days and we, all this, we know who did it. You know, I mean, that, that kind of thing, you know, they used a firearm. It's a violent act. We know who did it. There's no ties to the community. Those things like that, they've got to come into play. And one thing to me is the danger to the public. Sometimes I think that gets discounted. I think this is where it gets into the point to where you need to know who you're electing. You need to know who you're voting in to be judges in these circuits. Sometimes elections turn into popularity contests, but you got to know. You got to know the backgrounds. You got to know because these are the people who are looking at these cases and making decisions saying, what am I going to give priority to? Am I going to prioritize? Yes, the Constitution deserves to be considered. Of course it does. But you've got to consider the danger to the public if this person stays out, stays free. And you've got to look at their criminal history. Do they, is this a one time thing? Do they have a history of, escalating crime? Are they a prior habitual felony offender? Those type of things. And to me, so it's not apply the same because judges look at it different ways. So in one circuit, somebody could have a bond of one amount and Elmore could have an amount. Montgomery have a different amount. Lowndes County have a different amount. Chilton County have a different. So, and I know a lot of people when they look on social media and say the bond amount, there's this dissatisfaction of there's a lack of consistency. Well, that's true. And it's because different people are making those decisions. I'll tell you in our circuit, we have made some recent changes to try to streamline the process of ensuring public safety. Judge Bill Lewis has been in in the forefront of that with our circuit judges. Now, with our district judges, um, that's something to where in the past it's been, they've been pretty adamant about public safety in our circuit. The problem is not every case goes through the district court system. And if you don't mind, let me kind of take a minute to explain about that. Yes, please. All right. So also the grand jury process is one of the most important things you could ever have. I love the grand jury system we have. In my future career as a prosecutor, I'm willing for that to be a hill to charge up on and down if necessary. Because that process, the grand jury typically gets it right. And if the grand jury doesn't get it right, I can tell you in our circuit that if we come in possession of evidence we think would have changed the grand jury's decision, we'll take it back. Let a new grand jury hear it because there's new evidence. In the grand jury process, every felony case goes through that grand jury. 90% of cases, there's a police report. There's an investigation. So I come home from vacation and my door's kicked in. Okay, so I do a police report. Investigator comes out. They may find blood at the scene. They may take a sample. They may try to do fingerprints, all kind of stuff. They do an investigation. In the investigation, if they determine there's probable cause, and that's a legal term. So probable cause means is it more likely than not that a crime was committed 
and this person did it. So if they establish probable cause, that person's arrested. Within 30 days, that person gets a preliminary hearing. Before that hearing, if they can't make bond, they get a hearing within 72 hours. So you have an officer with some degree of experience has determined this probable cause. There's an initial appearance where typically the bond amount is argued and addressed. You have a preliminary hearing where they either waive the case to a grand jury. The defendant says, I agree with you, state. You got enough information that you've satisfied probable cause. I'm not going to fight you on it today. Or we have the hearing and a judge will determine Okay, state, you got enough probable cause. This case goes to grand jury. So there's another check in the system. All these things have happened before the case even gets to the grand jury, who they have the probable cause standard. Again, is it more likely than not that a crime occurred and this person did it? The other way a case gets to grand jury is kind of where I wanted to focus on, but I want to take through that other route first. It's called a direct present. Now, Direct presents are in the law. It was a, a way that we had once upon a time to go through cases to where, let's say the mayor of a jurisdiction was stealing money. Well, if word got out, they'd have a late night shred session. All the evidence would be gone. In the digital age, that's not really that much of a concern anymore. However, a lot of cases that go the route of direct present are delayed disclosure cases, usually sexual in nature, to where they come forward later. Because it's a delayed disclosure, and we we understand better now than we did 20, 30 years ago, children process things differently. People prey on children. They usually establish a relationship, manipulate that relationship, and victimize those children. So when, when those children grow older, and I don't want to speak for all of them, but some of them are raised in a way to where this is how you show love. This is what's natural. And as they get older, you realize, no, this was not. This was wrong. This shouldn't have ever happened to me. And they come forward. And I don't want to discourage that. They need to come forward. But the problem is when you start talking about a, an investigation, when years have passed, the rape kit you think about, I mean, all that evidence would be gone. If there was semen in the body, your body starts processing that immediately and eliminating it. So years later, that would be gone. Uh, medical examination, sometimes these people, are they're, they grow older, they're married, they have children of their own. So you're not going to see the type of things you would typically look for in those things. Evidence to corroborate their statement. This is so important in an investigation. Well, maybe they lived in a house that's been sold, so I can't go back and see the red curtains they talked about. So all those things that would corroborate their statement, they're gone. So you really, a lot of times, have a he said, she said case with no corroborating evidence. A lot of those cases are what's called direct presents. There's not an arrest made. We take it to a grand jury. The grand jury hears the facts. And then when the grand jury says, probable cause, let's indict it, then they would go and have to get booked into the jail and make bond and that type of thing. Previously, here was the problem. This is where we've, we've taken steps to fix that. Those are the cases to where a judge did not have a chance at initial appearance or prelim or bond hearing to evaluate that defendant, to look at that type of information. It was a direct present. So the first time a judge would have a chance to consider any of that was at arraignment. Here's the problem. There was about a week to two week lapse between the grand jury indicting that case and arraignment. So your question would be, what happens in that time where the, there's still paperwork circulating? Well, great question. There's a lag. And based off the bond schedule that's out there, based off the lack of information for that just to decide that, bond sometimes is way low on those cases. And that's what in our circuit, we've taken immediate measures to fill that gap, to try to cover, how do we get across that gap? We could sit around and talk about stuff all day. We could fuss about stuff. God knows there's plenty we could fuss about in today's world. And we got a, a society out here, y'all. There could be not a cloud in the sky, and we can't get 12 people to agree what shade of blue it is. But one thing we've got to be able to agree on 
is ensuring the safety of our public and of our children. We've got to do that. So if we have a sex offender out there, we tried to find a way to bridge that gap. There's all kind of laws out there and regulations to where I can't print off. Do I have a criminal history access? Sure. Can I give it to you? No, I go to jail if I do that. Can I give it to a judge? I can't. We have what's called ORI numbers. So if I use that ORI number to create a document, I can't give it to you. I can't give it to a judge. I can't give it to the, the Elmore County Sheriff's Office. I can't give it to Clanton PD. I can't give it to anybody outside my agency. So we've tried to get innovative to figure out how can we bridge that gap so that there's not a lag, so that somebody doesn't get out on a minuscule bond when they are a true 100% clear and present danger to the public. CJ, I think we're going to do two segments on this because uh, there's some more questions that uh, I want to ask. But I want to end with, you now fall under Randall Houston. Mm -hmm. You are about to be elected or you're running for office for district attorney now for the 19th district. Right now, if you were to win your election day one, what would you take from Randall Houston that you've learned? And what are you bringing as CJ Houston to District 19? Well, thank you. To me... The, what have I learned? One of the quotes, and it's on our door to the grand jury room, it says, do right and fear no man. At the end of the day, I want our prosecutors to do what's right. Make no qualms about it. Sometimes doing what's right is not popular. Sometimes doing what's right may not seem like it's the most acceptable thing to do in, to the masses, to the public, to the community, but I want us to do what's right. Now, I did learn that from him, and so that I would have to contribute that to him. That's on the door of our grand jury room. What would I bring to the table? I think I bring to the table the opportunity to advance our office into the digital age. When COVID hit, I took the step out there to put our office in the paperless world. We were not like other circuits in this state that came to a grinding halt. We were the first circuit to go back and continue doing jury trials after COVID-19. After the six-month moratorium put on by the state of Alabama, we were right out there at Labor Day, and we tried a case in Tulsa County where a girl had been sexually assaulted in a bathroom at Prattville High School. And we did not stop. We kept going. And I know there's some circuits today that are still disrupted because of that. But we got innovative. The DA's office, I led a charge to rent out the Wetumpka Civic Center for jury selection on a case where a 70-year-old preacher's wife was kidnapped and raped and just assaulted. And so I think I bring to the table the ability to look outside the box. I think you look back to when I went to the police academy to try to identify a problem and work to solve it. I've took us into the, the digital age. I've took us to the paperless age in dealing with uh, law enforcement and dealing with attorneys out there. I want us to reallocate some of our resources. And that may sound strange, but right now with the prison reform, like the old way of lining up at sentencing and like this big formation and going to battle and war, like if it's not rape, robbery, murder, like people are not going to prison for sentences like they were. And I'll be happy to talk about that later if I need to. But we've got to reallocate those resources. District court was a place for prosecutors to learn my entire career, to learn the ropes, to figure out their way. I have senior attorneys now that I have assigned to cases in district court because we've got to look at bonds being revoked. So if you're out on bond and you continue committing crimes, if you continue selling drugs, if you continue molesting children, if you continue doing stuff, we've got to revoke those bonds. That's one thing I've tried to reallocate resources to. And also just to know, man, as far as what we have in, in our circuit, the Chiltern Talking Elmore Counties, we are one of the largest circuits in the state. 
We are right there in the top 10 in terms of population. We're the largest multi-county circuit in terms of population. We're right there behind Montgomery, Birmingham, Mobile, and Shelby and Tuscaloosa, depending on how you count. We're not small-time crime. We're right up there with all the big boys. And to spread that over three offices, I think you need somebody that is connected not only to the community, but connected to our employees. And I'm so proud of our people. And I genuinely believe that the sense I get from them, they would they would follow my leadership to wherever we go. That drives me and that motivates me. And it also humbles me to do the best job I can do. Thank you. You've been listening to C.J. Robinson. He's the chief assistant district attorney for 19th Judicial Circuit, which is Otago, Chilton, and Elmore County. Also joined with me was Sarah Stevens with Otago Elmore News. We're going to have a part two. Stay tuned and start looking on our Facebook page and our website for a part two with C.J. Robinson. Thank you for joining Central Alabama Crime Stoppers. And again, if you see something, Thank Say you something. for listening to Central Alabama Crime Stoppers podcast. We are a nonprofit organization serving the state of Alabama. If you have any information regarding a crime, please contact the police or Crime Stoppers using our anonymous 24-hour tip line at 215-STOP, area code 334, or by downloading our P3 Tips app from your app store. When you call, be sure to receive a tip ID and password in order to dialogue with investigators in case there is a follow-up question. You can also contact us at our toll-free number at one 833 stop or visit our website at 215stop.com and follow us on Facebook at Central Alabama Crime Stoppers. Always remember, if you see something, say something. <laughs>